Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. The trans issue is a hugely complex and nuanced one in our society, and here on the Just Checking In pod, we want to interview a range of trans people with different perspectives on the subject. Transitioning is an experience which has huge consequences for someone's life if they decide to go through with it, and gender dysphoria is a mental health condition not given enough time to in the wider mental health conversation. The NHS defines gender dysphoria as, quote, a term that describes a sense of unease that a person may have because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. They go on to say that, quote, This sense of unease or dissatisfaction may be so intense it can lead to depression and anxiety and have a harmful impact on their daily life, end quote. So in this episode, I'm talking to a transsexual man called Aaron Kimberley. I call him transsexual because that is the term he wishes to be described as, not transgender, as you'll find out why in our conversation. Aaron is the founder of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance Canada. The organisation was formed in 2021 by a small group of community members who say they are concerned about the direction that gender medicine and activism has taken. GDAC, as it's otherwise known, is not formally affiliated with any political party, religious organisation or professional association, but the one thing all its members have in common is their own lived experience of gender dysphoria. In their mission statement, they state, quote, Though there is still a lot unknown about GD, we believe it is a condition with many possible pathways to it and through it, which is supported by peer-reviewed evidence. Some people with GD identify as transsexual or transgender, and many do not. Some have chosen to medically transition and are happy to have done so. Others have detransitioned or desisted. Many have lived full lives without the need to ever medically transition. Some are heterosexual and some are gay, lesbian or bisexual, end quote. In this episode, we discuss Aaron's healthcare background and how and why he came to care about the trans issue, particularly in children and teenagers around gender dysphoria. He establishes the difference between early childhood gender dysphoria and rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is ROGD, the rise of detransitioners in the conversation and their voices and how they have ended up speaking out and what this means for the LGBT community going forward and the wider conversation about transitioning through a mental health lens. Through research for this podcast I've come to find out that gender dysphoria can occur in many gay or lesbian people and there is quite fierce debate within the LGBT community between lesbians and trans people, trans people and other trans people and gay men and trans people about it. The community is certainly not a monolith when it comes to the correct way of thinking or the right approach. We also discuss Aaron's own transsexual journey, why he wanted a transition from female to male, the significance of leaving behind his dead name in quotation marks, why he and other transsexual people have a huge desire to blend into society post-transition, and the research that links gender dysphoria to other neurological conditions like ADHD or autism. 
This is a fascinating and nuanced conversation, not restricted by stigma or taboo. And I hope this educates people on the diversity of opinions on this issue, not just within the trans community, but throughout the LGB community more widely. Some of the things Aaron said, quite honestly, shocked me to learn. And I inquired and challenged Aaron on other parts of the interview too. It's very important to state again that gay people are not monoliths. Trans people are not monoliths and the sooner we realise that, the better we can be at having the difficult conversations and figure out how to improve and support everyone's mental health in the process. So this is how our conversation went. Aaron, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for giving up your time and letting me check in with you. The time difference is a little bit mad but we are doing this on a Sunday evening here I think we're doing it on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon where you are in Canada Sunday morning how are you going Sunday morning yeah I'm still drinking my morning coffee here (laughs) (laughs) amazing well I hope you're in a a nice comfortable position to do the podcast then yes (laughs) brilliant we've got so much to talk about on this podcast Aaron and there's so many different issues and nuances I want to discuss with you so shall we just start the show let's do it I came across you, Aaron, through your amazing interview with journalist, YouTuber, commentator, or however he wishes to describe himself, Benjamin Boyce, and the work you do at GDAC. So before we discuss how you came to found it, can you tell me why you got involved in this like wider topic and a bit about your medical background, as well as what you discovered whilst practicing? Yeah, it's a long story, so I'll try to keep it as short as possible, but still meaningful (laughs) for you because it's a lifelong journey and different aspects of my life intersecting in such a way that I became concerned about a few things. So those two major intersections are A, the fact that I am a transsexual man and, uh, you know, so transition from female to male. And through the course of our conversation, we can unpack a little bit about what that means for me. So that experience living life, you know, as female and then transitioning and presenting Mm -hmm. as male today. So that history intersecting with my professional history as a mental health clinician who's worked in a number of different settings. And I'd been out of the loop with trans politics for quite some time because I just transitioned and then I went off to live my life. But when I started to do a little bit of coordinating services for transgender youth, that's when I encountered re-entered some of the political discourse and ideological discourse and just realizing how much the conversation has changed over the last 15 years from when I transitioned. And I have some concerns about the direction that that's that's taken. So, I mean, that's the short version of the story. So Mm. maybe we can unpack that a little bit as we go. Yeah, sure. (laughs) We're going to talk about your sort of personal transsexual journey in a, a little bit later, Aaron. But When we spoke off air, you said that when you were sort of doing medical practicing and working in these clinics, you saw a lot of young people coming into the clinic you worked at with a high level of gender dysphoria, and they wanted to seek medical transition. You were offering to help assist the doctors who were sort of overwhelmed by the sheer volume of kids arriving, perhaps to a greater extent than they were maybe 10 to 15 years ago, if I'm right in saying. Now, this is obviously a huge decision for any young person to make, and the consequences... Yeah are well in a lot of ways irreversible especially if they decide to get like mastectomies if they're a female or maybe if they're male to get castration can you just explain what the issues that you saw in those clinics you know were there effective guardrails provided to those kids to make sure that the decision that they were taking was 100% the right one for them and their mental health and why did you think there was such a high level of kids coming in as well yeah you know tough question and I think you know as a clinical community we're still 
trying to figure out the answers to some of those questions. Mm. But so the clinic where I was working sees a, a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. And we offer a lot of different services. So mental health services, medical services, we weren't really advertising that we were a trans care center, but we are open to all youth in our community who are looking for support. And they were expressing interest in medical transitioning. And so the physicians with their program were willing to offer that and felt comfortable offering that with some education and support, which they sought out through the health authority. But our physicians were only with us for very limited hours every week, and they were getting overwhelmed with the numbers. And I had been working with some of the youth in other capacities, like for just general counseling and those kinds of things. And I wasn't involved in the, in the medical aspects of it at all. But when our physicians were just feeling a bit overwhelmed with the high demand, because doing the assessments and getting to know these kids, it does require some time and some sessional time with our physicians who, like I said, have very limited time with us. So that's when I pitched the idea, well, can I support our physicians in some way? You know, because I I was full-time there and they were only part-time there. So that's how I got involved in just helping to coordinate some of those services and help with assessment. And it wasn't the youth themselves that I was concerned about. It was it was just learning about how the medical part of it, how much that's changed over the years. Because when I went through it, so looking back and unpacking this, because I was so kind of confused by what I was seeing that I've taken some time to understand how those changes happened and what that means. And so when I went through it, it was the beginnings of what we now call the affirmation model. Okay. Prior Can to you explain what that yeah. model is for the listeners? So prior know. to the affirmation model, so let's say prior to like around the 1990s and into the early 2000s, it was psychologists and psychiatrists that were leading the care for people with then it was called gender identity disorder. And they were still medically transitioning people if, you know, after careful assessment and some psychotherapy, if, if it seemed to be in a client's best interest for their quality of life and their mental health, that people were transitioning. So it's not that it was trying to prevent everybody from transitioning, but there was an emphasis on A, understanding gender identities disorder from a psychological point of view. Psychologists back then had been researching two primary types of gender dysphoria, one being a homosexual subtype, which is early childhood onset, and then an autogynephilia subtype, which was only impacting biological males and tended to be a later life onset. So at the time, that's really primarily who they were seeing in the clinics were people that were natal males transitioning. There weren't many female to males transitioning back then. And, and that's why the, the research really wasn't including trans men in the studies. So those two primary types that they were seeing at the time were well studied. I've read case presentations or you know papers where they were successfully treating those two types of gender identity disorder, sometimes into helping people integrate that into their identity in a way that they were satisfied with, they meaning that the client was satisfied with, and were able to live their lives happily, sometimes without medical interventions, and then in some cases, medical interventions. So that's what the, the landscape looked like back then. The affirmation mm -hmm. model, what that changed was that taking that psychotherapy off the table, it was more affirming one's identity. So the shift in the clinician's stance was less about doing psychotherapy and assessment and more about, I'm going to affirm that you are who you say you are. So without investigation. Without kind of further investigation yeah. into, you know, identity development or motivations for transitioning and those kinds of things, or exploring whether, you know, we can address and make you more comfortable 
without having to change your body. But what changed is this idea that when you had these cross-sex feelings, it meant you are a trans person. Prior to that, we were looked at it as you are natal male, natal female with gender identity disorder and that transitioning was a treatment for that. So that major ideological shift is no, you are a trans person. That's not something that we want to, to change about you, that we're just going to affirm that about you. Early in that model, it still allowed for assessment and it was still the recommendations. I mean, as the WPATH standards of care are currently written, they still highly recommend psychotherapy, but it's no longer kind of mandated as part of the process in the same way. Mm. There's one paragraph in the WPATH standards of care that talks about a different model called an informed consent model which is taking that idea even further and eliminating even the need for assessment where it says informed consent means that we just determine that you're capable of providing consent. So no major like, you know, so even under the age of 16 or something like that. I don't think that paragraph really talked about age. It was talking about, you know, that certain clinics are practicing this model. They named the Fenway clinic as one of the first to be practicing that way that, Really, we just determine that you're capable of providing consent. And if you are, then we'll start you on the treatment of your choice. And so they endorse that model. So, you know, we got this like whole standards of care can be helpful to integrate gender dysphoria into a meaningful identity for people, thus eliminating the need for medical, lifelong medical intervention. So they talk about all of that in the standards of care, you know, needing careful assessment, including, you know, assessment of a person's family dynamics and things like that, especially for youth. So they talk about all of that, but then they have this one clause that say, oh, but some clinics are practicing an informed consent model and that's okay. And that Mm. is where practice is going more and more and more and more over the last 15 years or so is in that direction of an informed consent model where just have people sign a waiver that explains that, yes, you're consenting to this treatment and we've provided you education about the risks and then starting people on treatment, sometimes after you know a single visit. Doing my research for this, there seems to be two opposing or diametric approaches to this or treating children who have gender dysphoria from a psychological perspective, Aaron. The one that you talked about, which is affirmative, and then the other, which is called watchful waiting, I believe. Can you explain what watchful waiting is, you know, which approach you would probably prefer from a clinical perspective and and maybe some statistics or outcomes behind either of them or both of them? Yeah, so the watchful waiting uh, refers to children, not adults. So the affirmation model isn't specific to an age group. It's, you know, more of of an ideological stance in the care, whereas watchful waiting specifically refers to young people. And the idea about it was that there has been research into desistance rates. So what that means is, I mean, I think there's something like 11 studies now. Their numbers are all slightly different, but they all say the same thing, that the vast majority of children who experience gender dysphoria or cross-sex identification end up resolving that by the time they're adults. So those who are in favor of a watchful waiting approach, they just want to remain neutral and not kind of coerce or direct that child in any one direction by showing a preference, right? That that you can either, mm-hmm. maybe this will persist into your adulthood and you would benefit from, you know, medical interventions, but maybe not. I mean, when the statistics are saying like the most recent study that was released quite recently, like months ago, said 88%. It was just on on natal boys, but they said 88% of those boys who had some degree of cross-sex identification as children ended up desisting by the time, like through adolescence and by the time they were adults. And most of those end up being gay or lesbian kids. 
So when that's the, you know, gay kids. So we need to be careful with kids that we're not intervening in a way that is coercing or directing their natural development. We just want to support them and care about them for who they are. And maybe they'll grow up to be healthy gay or lesbian kids or, or bisexual kids, or maybe they will grow up to need interventions, but we don't want to rush that process. That's yeah. in a nutshell what watchful waiting meant. There's serious debate in these circles around the idea of the trans kid in inverted commas, as opposed to the opposing view, which is that these are children with gender dysphoria, which need to be addressed and sort of resolved through the best option for them. It might be eventual medication or medical intervention, but it might not be. What side of the debate you sort of come under and then what would you say to people who would argue that actually gender is immutable that if you know you are gay when you are four to five years old or six seven years old or slightly older and we don't seem to question that anymore and obviously for good reason yeah then you must know you're trans at that age too right well i think it goes back to that research that the vast majority of kids that have some degree of cross-sex identification, and there's varying degrees of intensity of, of that, right? But the vast majority of those kids that have what we could call gender dysphoria do end up becoming gay or lesbian kids, you know, quite happily. And those sometimes those feelings resolve and sometimes they don't. So that's my hesitation to kind of slap this label of trans on the kids, because going back to this idea of watchful waiting, assigning a label to these kids that you are trans by either a parent or a therapist saying that's what this means, you are trans, or even just a cultural message that these kids are getting through the media or through teachers or through peers that if you have these feelings, it means you're trans. Well, that is an intervention then, right? I mean, if watchful mm-hmm. waiting is simply being neutral and saying, look, we love you no matter what, if, if this doesn't resolve for you, we'll support you to transition if that's what you need. Or, you know, maybe you'll end up being a gay or lesbian kid and we'll love you if that's the case. So by assigning a label trans, that's interfering with the watchful waiting approach because then that starts to confirm and consolidate their identity. Identity itself is a fluid thing. Identity is something that is constructed. It's a combination of of our own natural traits and our interactions with our environment. And once we identify as something, that starts to solidify it. So the fear is if most of these children would just grow up to be happy gay and lesbian people, the fear is that we're actually leading them down a separate path that ends up being, not that it's bad to be trans, but are we setting them down a path of unnecessary lifelong medicalization when they could have just been happy gay or lesbian kids and until so they could be like butch lesbians yeah. or they could be like quite highly effeminate gay men and, and they, they just don't fall into the i guess what some would argue stereotypical gender attributes but they could just be gender non-conforming gay men or women exactly is that what you're saying exactly yeah. and that needs to be perfectly okay and acceptable as well You said some of these children who were coming in had underlying or or maybe obvious other neurological or mental health conditions alongside their gender dysphoria. So, for example, kids who presented with ADHD, diagnosed or undiagnosed autism, or even other traumas. So, for example, they could have been sexually abused, they could have parental issues or even other traumas like grief or or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. How did those conditions, in your opinion, sort of relate to their GD in any way? Well, there's a lot of question marks about it. I mean, some of those things have, those correlations have been studied, so aren't contested, like the correlation between autism and gender dysphoria has been well documented in literature. But we don't really know what that correlation is about, right? We just know that Mm -hmm. we're seeing these higher numbers. So ADHD, autism, and trauma, and same-sex attraction seem to be kind of 
the big ones that we see in youth coming to clinics. And I mean, the vast majority of youth that I saw in my practice were females, natal females who are same-sex attracted, and many of them had autism, ADHD, or some degree of family trauma in the past. But we have to be careful about drawing conclusions about what that means. So with autism, mm-hmm. for example, I'm certainly... It goes differently to boys as well, by the way. It, like it we totally does. Yeah, yeah very it totally yeah. does. And so on one hand, I mean, there is a theory that autism with girls in particular, there is like a testosterone and autism link that I don't quite understand. I'm not an autism expert, but testosterone plays a role in autism somehow. And there is a theory that perhaps, especially for the natal girls with autism, if they had been exposed to higher levels of testosterone as they were developing, it may have masculinized them in some way and contributed to cross-sex identification in ways that we don't quite understand yet, but perhaps uh, involving neurological pathways or processes. So that's one possible theory. But the other thing we have to consider with autism is what do we know about autism? We know that people with autism have trouble reading social cues, that they do tend to be more gender non-conforming because they're not picking up on cues and they don't necessarily care about conforming in the same way that someone without autism might. And they have more difficulties socially, which we could also say about kids with ADHD and trauma backgrounds that if it impacts their social functioning, you know, to what extent are kids looking for a place to belong and a group to belong to? And if they're very socially isolated, because we, this is a trend that clinicians will tell you about too, that we often see these very quirky, socially awkward, very yeah, lonely quirky kids. Quirky is the word I hear a lot. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. they're very lonely kids who are looking for a place to belong and they see this group of trans kids who also maybe seem kind of quirky to them. And there's a cultural trans that's happening now that wasn't the case so much, you know, 15, 20 years ago, where there's a lot of marketing and branding of everything trans. And, you know, it's in the news a lot more. It's being talked about a lot more now, but there's also kind of these social rules. You see these kids on TikTok or whatever talking about it and, and how there's these all these different pronouns and different types of identities now. And neo like, pronouns I see a lot. Yeah. Ne- yeah. Neo pronouns or identities like, you know, I'm I'm demisexual, I'm you know, there's, there's so many stuff. different I, I do a lot of research on this. I didn't know what any of those meant until yeah. about two months ago. So all these different words and different rules and you can see some of these kids really getting immersed in some of that cultural stuff. And it's almost like if they just learn a certain set of rules that it simplifies socialization for them. And they get to be a part mm. of a peer group for the very first time. So it's so complicated, right? And, and as clinicians, we have to sort of think critically about all these different layers and these different phenomena that are happening and, and different clinical presentations. And it, it's so complex. So it concerns yeah. me that, you know, how do we as clinicians think critically and do the least harm to these young people and explore it with these young people, but in this climate of this real push to the informed consent only model where everyone is just is who they say they are, and, and we're going to start them on medicalization just because, you know, they're saying that's what they want. So after a 20-minute appointment, we'll write them an order for a prescription for testosterone without considering all of those very nuanced layers of why a person may be coming to our clinics. Yeah, what you said there sort of, and I kind of speak about this a little bit, about how sort of when I was growing up in school, so secondary school or middle school or in high school would be what you would describe it as sort of 2005 to 2010. And then I did kind of sixth form where I did my A-levels and then before I went to university, 2010 to 2012, mental health wasn't really a thing. Mental health wasn't discussed. Toxic masculinity was quite rampant. If you expressed emotion as a boy, you were called a pussy or, or a homophobic slur and no one had any clue about it. 
And I'm just wondering, have we almost gone to the other end of the spectrum where there's almost an overpathologizing, if that's the right term, for a lot of these kids where they're now so self-aware of their mental health. They might be self-diagnosing with things they don't even have and it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy and that filters into this trans conversation. Would that be an accurate assessment or am I talking complete rubbish? Well, I think you're right, except that they're no longer saying that being trans is connected with any condition at all whatsoever. And that, I think, is the most significant ideological shift that's happened, which I touched on at the very beginning, is is that we used to think of this as a condition called gender dysphoria, and that was being studied, and, and there were clinicians were trying to understand that, and we're starting to identify different types of gender dysphoria. And that information informed the clinical practice, which we, we would expect in clinical practice, right? We would expect to remain curious about this thing that we're diagnosing and treating and continue to improve our understanding and knowledge about it and continue to uh, improve upon our services based on the most of it, you know, the most recent evidence. That's a normal way of thinking as a clinician. But what has happened in recent years is that we're no longer looking at this as as a condition at all. It's being framed as this is just natural diversity, that everyone has a gender identity. And so it's up to every individual to figure out what their gender identity is and make decisions about that. So it's really inviting every child out there to decide what is your gender identity. And it's kind of like saying to kids, if you think about how this might be interpreted as a five-year-old, you can just decide if you're a boy or a girl. You get to decide for, for any reason you can think of. Why a you, scary thought. <laughs> yeah, you get to decide, you know, based on any decision you can think of why you might prefer to be a boy or not a girl or a girl and not a boy. And nobody should tell you otherwise. You get to just decide. And if you decide that your life would somehow be better or easier as the opposite sex, then you get to go to a clinic. And after a 20-minute appointment, as long as, you know, you seem to be more or less stable and and cognitively able to make that decision, then you get to make that decision. That's what this has turned into. And that's scary because I can think Mm -hmm. of lots of different reasons, as could anyone, if you think about it, like lots of different reasons for why someone might want to change sex. And that unfortunately has become a very controversial thing to say, but I've been doing this for a long time and I've interacted with tons of trans people over time. And I know that we didn't all transition for the same reason. And I'm never going to out anyone in particular, you know, without their permission to tell their story. But of the social circle or my network, you know, and they've permitted me, they're part of GDAC. And we are about storytelling and just te- just opening up about why we, we've done this. And we have people in our network who were sexually abused as children. And now they, you know, 20 years later after transitioning, know that that had a lot to do with their transition. They didn't feel safe to be a girl and hadn't processed that trauma, even had clinicians at the time saying, look, I really think you should look at that trauma before transitioning, but they went ahead and they transitioned. And now they're like, oops, you know, I guess I should have done that work because they did that work over time and then realized, okay, that actually had more to do with my dysphoria than anything else. So people transition for all different kinds of reasons. And lots of people have said, well, we don't need gender dysphoria to be trans, that I never had gender dysphoria when I was going through it. And people have said they lied to their clinicians and, you know, they kind of learned the narrative to say to their clinicians in order to get hormones. So all of those things are true and a part of the trans landscape. And I don't say that to shame the trans community or to take anything away from those individuals. But when we're looking at the children now, knowing what I know about all the different reasons people transition, I understand why that's a frightening conversation for trans people. And like I said, I'm never going to out somebody I don't have permission to out. 
but we're looking at these children and is it okay for us to transition children who have been sexually abused and they're trying to escape their biological sex because they don't feel safe to be a girl or is it you know all these reasons that we can think of so we have to think critically about it and i think it has to be part of the public conversation you know under what circumstances is it okay for someone to medically transition and i know everyone's going to have a different opinion about that but the clinicians need to come to some kind of consensus about that and who really benefits from these treatments. I'm going to give you a quick, quick fire culture war hot potatoes now, Aaron, for your, because sure. I want to get your perspective on them as a trans man. We've seen the very prominent case of 43 year old New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard now accepted into the women's Olympic team. Now for the listeners, Laurel is a trans male to female and she is now competing in the women's Olympic weightlifting team uh, at time of recording. What is your opinion on this? And I guess trans women in biologically female sports, because we're seeing some really big examples, I think, coming more into the fore of trans women at the elite level, not sort of the local level, particularly, but the elite level, destroying the competition. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it is a cultural hot potato right now. You know, we need a careful, nuanced, informed approach to this that takes into account fairness for everybody. Now, there are biological differences between men and women. That's just a fact. That Puberty being one. <laughs> yeah. So, and our biology doesn't care about our identities and our feelings. Now, when I just kind of go out and live my life from in day to day and I put gas in my car and or go to buy groceries, I don't think my biology really matters that much. But there are times when my biology does matter. And and so in the interest of fairness and respect and responsibility to our, our communities and to others and the and the fairness of everybody, you know, whether that's women or trans people or men, we need to think critically in, in a nuanced sort of way. And when we know that biologically men tend to be bigger, stronger, faster on average, than biological females. I mean, that was just common sense prior to the trans debate entering into that discourse. We segregated men and women in different spaces for reasons, and some of those reasons had to do with biology. So with women's sport, we really need some quality research to determine all the nuances of this. So one factor is if somebody transitions as a child and doesn't go through a male puberty, and then lives their life as, as a trans female, I'm guessing that doesn't have as much impact on their physical performance as someone who went through a male puberty and developed male physical characteristics, you know, like height and bone density and musculature and all of those things. Twitch fibers, yeah. Yeah, so that I think is a factor. And I think a factor too is, you know, we need to know exactly if someone who's natally male is on estrogen, how much does that impact their performance? You know, so how long does someone need to be on estrogen? And so if someone is on estrogen, let's say for a year, to what degree does that impact their physical performance? So we need quality research to answer, answer those questions to know exactly what are the advantages of, you know, trans woman over someone that was born female. What exactly are the advantages and what is the impact of those advantages on, on estrogen? Until we have those answers... I would really like to see trans women, like out of respect for people and women's sport, to just take a step back, but at the same time, put pressure on the researchers or give us the answers, as, you know, quality answers as fast as possible for the interest of fairness. Because I think it's probably yeah. different from sport to sport too, right? So this needs to be nuanced. Exactly which sports do they have an unfair advantage and which ones they don't. And so if it can be determined that in certain types of sports, they don't have any physical advantage, 
then let them play, right? Uh, but if it can be determined that there are specific sports, and I would, I would guess, I mean, I'm not an Most expert, of them, but probably. <laughs> well, I would guess, especially something like weightlifting, where, <laughs> yeah, right? That's probably numero that's, that's, uno, that's, isn't that's it? probably probably <laughs> going to be one where they have a, a demonstrated advantage, and and that's just it's not doing us any favors as trans people to just kind of plow over everybody, you know, and whip out the transphobia card every time someone objects to these ideas of fairness. And we don't just have rights as trans people. I mean, of course I want rights. I don't, you know, I want to be able to hold a job and live my life without being beaten up and, and harassed. I mean, yes, we need rights and dignity and respect, but we also have responsibilities in society and we're not doing ourselves any favors by demonstrating zero empathy for other people and not being willing to engage in empathetic and fair conversations with people so that we can figure these nuances out in a way where we can coexist in society peacefully and, and fairly. And that, that's not calling for the oppression of trans people. That's, that's saying, okay, look, we have rights now. Some of us just want to live in society as responsible citizens. And as responsible citizens, we have to care about others as well. There's people who are excluded from sport at high competition levels for all different kinds of reasons, like having physical disabilities. And they're not whipping out a you know an angry mob because they're excluded from certain sports. They've created different sports categories in the interest of fairness. And I think what it also does, it muddies the waters when it comes to issues like, for example, Casa Semenya, who is intersex. Yeah. And I believe that she was treated pretty unfairly by the powers that be because she can't control her biology. That was how she was born with. Yeah. And she was stopped from competing against biological females so then what i think people will you know go to and they go well caster was banned should they be banned but intersex is a completely different issue to trans isn't it i mean there's a tiny little bit of overlap but yes intersex people and and the, the unique needs of intersex people has kind of been appropriated by the trans movement which a lot of intersex people take objection to and are pushing back and i do have an intersex condition myself and so as an individual you know trying to unpack all of that. But you're right. I mean, isn't it ironic and, and unfair that someone with an intersex condition, and that is part of their biology, and then they are female, that's racing fair and square. Yeah, as well, that, like. that, that they're not allowed to compete in women's sport, you know, because their testosterone levels are naturally high, that they're saying that's not allowed. But someone that someone who's trans is allowed to compete in women's sport. It's, it, it, it's a confusing sort of argument, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, I want to also talk about this sort of hugely worrying video that detransitioner Helena reposted of what appeared to be, I guess, a young lesbian woman who said she had joined a commune. I think she was 21 years old. And the people in that commune, I'm not assuming that what sexuality or gender those people are, but in the video, she said she was told to undo her genital preference in quotation marks. And she seemed to, in the video kind of infer that she now enjoyed heterosexual well I guess that would be implied heterosexual sex with a penis now from the outside looking in that seems like some sort of conversion therapy and there's a whole whole argument about trying to ban gender exploratory therapy under the guise of conversion therapy or calling it conversion therapy what are your thoughts on all of that because that's just another level of confusion and sort of (laughs) bafflement to me yeah, I've been seeing a lot of that, you know, posts like that and, and conversations about about that idea of genital preference. And I don't see how somebody can just will themselves to change that. That's just a physiological response. You know, our sexual orientation is just, I mean, with, with the romantic relationships, I, mean, I don't want to reduce, 
you know, gay and lesbian identities to just about genital preference and, and sex because, you mm. know, we were as gay and lesbian people. I mean, I lived a large part of my life as a lesbian and we fought so hard to say, well, look, why are people so obsessed about our sexualities? Like when I fall in love with somebody, that's not just about genitals and sex. That's, mm. you know, I, because we have romantic relationships with people as well, right? Who we fall in love with and who we're just physically attracted to without even seeing their genitals, right? I, I mean, I'm attracted to women before I see them naked but genital preference is still a part of sexuality and a part of our our just natural physical physiological attraction to people it really seems like gaslighting doesn't it to say to somebody well no you it's your moral responsibility to just somehow rewire that in yourself it, it is very homophobic i think that's what people don't seem to realize is that within this community there's like a war going on between gay people male gay people i should say or female gay people sort of against trans people who subscribe to this belief or other bisexual people fighting against them. There's this like big internal war. And I think people think of the LGBT community as this like one single, like progressively upward monolith. And really that's actually not the case, is it? It isn't. No, it isn't the case. There are lots of different kinds of gay and lesbian people and and lots of different kinds, just as like, there's lots of different heterosexual people, right? And there's lots of different trans people. And and that's why some of us are starting to speak out on trans issues is because there's a narrative of being written about what it means to be trans that's written by one cohort and seems to serve one cohort of the trans community. But we're not all the same and, and we don't all think the same and how we conceptualize our own experiences isn't the same. And I don't feel like it's kind of like, well, not kind of like there's more than one trans community, just like there's more than one heterosexual community or gay community. And those that think more along my lines who do, who do identify as having, I, I am biological female that has gender dysphoria. That's just how I relate to my experience. And I feel like our way of, of thinking about this has been drowned out in part, I think, because we haven't been as well organized. We've just scattered all across here in Canada or the United States or wherever country, whatever country we're living in. We just have gone. We're not part of a trans community. We just went off and, and lived our lives and are just trying to do that successfully. So we don't know each other and we haven't organized ourselves as a unified voice on these issues in the, to the same degree that those who had a lot invested in being part of a trans community and stayed in trans community in, in the bigger urban centers. And they are the ones that have kind of set the agenda and have been more vocal in the public sphere of these things. And, and the rest of us have, are now kind of tuning in saying, well, wait a second, <laughs> that doesn't represent me and my experience at all. That's why we're trying to come out more and, and are speaking out about this. I want to talk quickly about GDAC because you set it up in January 2021. And like you've already said, the main thing which makes GDAC special or, or makes it people you know, feel inclined to join it, that it's made up of trans people and it's made up of de-trans people. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a lot of the listeners will be thinking, hang on, I thought de-transition people don't exist. I thought once you transitioned, they, you know, that was it. But that's not actually the case, is it? You know, How important are de-trans stories for the wider conversation and you know are they say a very small minority like i think i i often hear like it's one percent of people who detransition, or is it actually a lot more than that 
We don't really know exactly how many there are because there hasn't been any really good quality research. And I think it would be a hard thing to research just because of the political environment. But there's also, you know, efforts to research it, you know, clinicians that have been doing this work for a really long time and they're seeing more people reporting detransition who are concerned about it and curious about it and wanting to research it. Um, like James Caspian, for example, in the UK, wanted to research it. And, and he's been a huge trans rights activist or advocate and has supported the trans community all these years as a clinician, but wants to better understand detransition. So wanted to, to study it and was told by the university he wasn't allowed to. So I don't think detransition is new. I mean, having been in the community for as long as I have, not just the trans community, but the gay and lesbian community for as long as I have, we would often hear stories of people who you know, we'd hear rumors that, oh, so-and-so, they decided to detransition and they just kind of disappear from the community. And the community response to that tends to be some degree of kind of dismissal and hostility about that. Um, or even abuse I've seen in some places. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a very warm environment in which for people to kind of talk about and express their feelings of regret, right? And when people feel like, okay, I, this is my community in which I feel safe and I don't feel safe anywhere else, there's a lot invested in, I don't want to rock the boat and potentially kind of be ousted from this community that I need for support and safety. It's an environment of, of groupthink, right? And, and needing mm -hmm. to belong to that community. So I don't think transition regret is new. And I think the idea of, of detransition is a little bit misleading too, because a lot of people do regret at least some degree of their transition. Like I, I regret the bottom surgery, for example, and I've, I've since unpacked and better understand a lot of my own motivations for transitioning and have landed on feeling like I don't know really that my transition was necessary to resolve some of the things that I was experiencing, but I'm not detransitioning. So I wouldn't be counted under that detransition statistic, even though I regret at least part of my transition. And I know other trans men who regret part of their transition. But this idea mm -hmm. of detrans, when we think of this as I have gender dysphoria, and this was a treatment that I chose for gender dysphoria, the idea of detrans doesn't threaten me in any way at all. Like it makes total sense to me that some people who had just dysphoria for some reason, and I think there's lots of different reasons like we talked touched on earlier, there's lots of different reasons for why someone might want to transition, who start the process of transitioning and then realize that's not solving the problem for them. And so they detransition yeah. and solve that problem in some other way. That just totally makes sense to me. And I don't feel threatened by that. And I, and I want to better understand that and their experience of, okay, so what were your reasons for wanting to transition and, and why didn't this help you? And there's so much rich information there to be learned about how do we do this work better. But when you look at this from the other ideological point of view that trans is just trans and it's just something we're born with and can never be changed, the idea of detransition is very confusing then for those people with that ideological way of thinking about this. It's like, okay, well then, what does that mean then when someone detransitions? It either means that they were never trans or it means that they are trans, but they detransitioned because somebody maybe coerced them or maybe it was transphobia and, and they didn't feel that they could carry through their transition. So they, they have all these different ways of rationalizing mm -hmm. that, right? That yeah. because it doesn't, their own agency, it doesn't, doesn't it? fit yeah. into their yeah. worldview, this idea that if you're a trans person, you're a trans person. So you can't just snap out of being trans just like you can't snap out of being gay 
But gender dysphoria, we can resolve in other ways, depending on, especially depending on why we develop that dysphoria in the first place. You said you've received a lot of abuse online from some kind of trans rights advocates or trans rights activists, I should say, simply because GDAC exists. Mm-hmm. You've been called a transphobe, which I've seen, which I guess from the outside looking kind of boggles my mind because you are trans. So yeah. that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. It's like calling a gay person a homophobe. I don't really see how the argument you can make. But anyway, how do you respond and withstand those barbs and how have they affected your own mental health? Yeah, you know, since I created GDAC, I'm getting two responses, right? I'm getting those trans people that think of their gender dysphoria and their trans- transition along the lines that I do. So I'm attracting those people. I'm attracting parents who are just concerned about the system of care for their young people who are alarmed by sending their kid to a clinician who wants to start them on hormones after a 20-minute conversation. But you're right that I am getting pushback from some people, and it's those people who have the other ideological way of understanding their trans experience. So I'm not in any way advocating for harm to be done to trans people. I'm not saying that the whole entire trans care system should be shut down. I just have a very different ideological way of understanding my trans experience. And that's what they're interpreting as transphobic. Right. Yeah. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me when you actually sort of explain it in reality terms. Like how can you be transphobic if you are trans? But anyway, we'll move, we'll move on. One thing I do see a lot in this conversation, Aaron, and it's one that I've been trying to do more research in is the idea that some kids or some parents are told either by doctors or they're told by people online that if they don't medically transition as an adult or a child that that person will take their own life this is a very serious accusation or claim to be made I'm right in saying that sometimes parents have been told this in front of their children which I feel like is so inappropriate to me when I was sort of terrified when I read that like I'm trying I was trying to think like imagine if I was told by a doctor and the doctor said in front of my mom, like, you know, your kid might take their own life. And I was just, yeah, it just blew my mind, to be honest. What is the truth about this? Are there high suicide rates among gender dysphoric children or ones who have medically transitioned? Does the suicide rate, you know, lower after they medically transition? Like, what is the truth here? Because I'm, I'm really trying to find that out. It is hard to find that out, isn't it? And, you know, when we're going to make a really bold and clear statement like that, we need to be really, really sure that that's true, right? I mean, A, is that child in front of us? suicidal and to what degree right i mean let's not just pull a statistic from a survey and tell parents that their kid is going to commit suicide if they don't transition if that individual child isn't suicidal right so we can't just (sighs) but it's my understanding that a lot of those statistics come from community surveys that show uh, and i can't you know just off the top of my head remember what those stats are but when they survey the trans community, they're finding that there are higher rates of, of suicidal ideation amongst the trans population than other populations. But, are, you know, are they comparing that to people with other mental illnesses? Because there is a correlation between trans people and other conditions like autism, mm. ADHD, all, all of those. So we need to be comparing those stats. Like, how do these stats compare to somebody who has autism and is really lonely and and isolated and, and having trouble with, right? So we have, to, we have to really think critically about these numbers. But the other thing too, a lot of these surveys are done online and there are activists in the community that have an emotional investment in things going a certain way. 
And with these online surveys, you can answer those surveys over and over and over and over and over and over again by just creating other email addresses. So we need to be really careful about how we're collecting this data. So if people really want a certain, have an agenda and they want things going in a certain direction and they're going to answer those surveys in a particular way in order to, to serve their own agenda, we need to be very careful about that. But the other issue too is if somebody is very, very psychologically unstable, if they are very suicidal and they're really struggling to manage their day-to-day life, transition is a very complex, very stressful thing. Anyone mm-hmm. that's been through it, you know, talk to us older guys that are have kind of <laughs> been on this journey for a while. It, it's complicated and it's stressful and there's lots of socially complicated stuff. It's not just give someone hormones and send them on their way and they're going to do fine. I mean, they now have to navigate the psychological aspects of that, the social aspects of that. They are going to encounter some transphobia mm-hmm. and pushback. It's hard. and It's a new reality, isn't it? It yeah. is. And we yeah. want to start people on that process with really solid mental health and really good resources to manage all of that successfully and safely. So if a young person is going to a clinic saying, I'm off the chart suicidal, we need to address that first, right? Let's get them in some support and really stabilize that individual because someone should not be making a major medical decision that impacts the rest of their life when they're in the midst of a crisis. As a final question before we move on, Aaron, what has doing GDAC taught you about yourself and what do you hope to achieve with it going forward? Great question. I think, you know, I'm the least likely person to be doing any of this. I don't <laughs> I don't like a lot of attention. I'm not, you know, a natural born leader. I'm you know, I'm just someone out there living, living my life. And, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm a good clinician. I really enjoy clinical work and I really care about each of these kids that are coming to our clinics. Anyone that knows me knows that if I'm doing these podcasts, if I'm putting my name and my face out there and saying this stuff publicly, people are now saying I'm a, I'm a public figure, which is just so bizarre and surreal to me. If I'm out here saying this, it's because I'm seeing something wrong, right? Like anyone that knows me says like, that's Aaron saying these things like I don't like even big birthday parties I don't like being the center of attention but I'm just so concerned about some of these things that are that are happening and I'm concerned about you know how some of this is playing out in society today I'm concerned about the well-being of of these young people and their their long-term safety and and well-being that's why I'm speaking out and it's so hard to um, really articulate these things in a way that that really helps people understand that this isn't about hating anybody. Like I'm not trying to dismantle this whole thing and I'm not trying to shame anybody, but I'm really concerned about how some of these things are are playing out enough that I feel like it's necessary for me to to cultivate some of these skills to be able to step out and and say some of these things. So that's, I think, where I'm having to learn and, and adjust in a hurry here because GDAC is growing really, really fast. And so I'm just having to develop some of these skills to be able to you know, articulate this and, and do this well. We've talked all about GDAC and the work you do in giving trans and D-trans people a voice, Aaron. Let's talk about your own journey now. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through your early life, maybe teenage years, family, if you're comfortable, And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Aaron we meet here? Or you may use your previous name to explain this part of your journey if you feel comfortable doing so. 
Sure. So I grew up, you know, as a girl. So my first name was Kimberly or Kim for, I went by Kim for short. I grew up in a, in a small farming community, working class family. My family farmed for many, many years. And so I grew up, you know, amongst truckers and farmers and loggers and working class people. Now, looking back, I would say that I had signs of gender nonconformity from a very, very early age, you know, as, as a three-year-old. I mean, those are my earliest memories. And for a period of my childhood, I really did believe I was a boy in some way. And that was very confusing for me because it wasn't like a psychotic delusion in that it's not that I didn't understand that my biology wasn't the same as, as a boy's biology. I mean, as a three-year-old, I didn't really have the capacity to uh, dissect all of that. But in some way, I felt like I am a boy in some way. But that was very confusing and distressing for me because I knew that wasn't really factual. So it was confusing. Why do I feel this? But when I wanted to just interact with the world, I just saw myself as I just am a boy interacting with the world. And it felt like it's the rest of the world that is wrong somehow, that they're not mm. interacting with me in the way that I want to just interact with the world. So it, for me, it was like, well, of course, when I go swimming, I'm just going to wear swim trunks and no shirt. That's what boys do. So why are you telling me that I can't? So it was just very confusing. But I did function in the world reasonably well. I had lots of friends. I had guy friends and girlfriends. And I'd say I was always a fairly kind of shy and reserved kid, more kind of bookish, more of an introverted personality and liked interacting with people more one-on-one -on -one than in groups. But I would be out in the bush with the boys building forts out of sticks and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. So you're a tomboy? I was a tomboy. Very yeah. much a tomboy. I just, you know, I liked some sports and uh, my bro I have a younger brother and, and we hung out a lot together and, you know, we would set up boxing rings and do like, you know, <laughs> have boxing matches until one of us got a nosebleed and very stuff like that. There. <laughs> very, very stereotypical. And, and yes, it was confusing and awkward in some ways, especially if anyone did question, because a lot of people just thought I was a boy. I, I signed up for um, a boys baseball team one year by accident because my dad took me to, to register me for baseball <laughs> and the registrar just thought it was a boy and put me on a boy's team. So, I mean, I thought that was awesome. And, and the boys, they didn't bat an eye. Like mm -hmm. maybe they thought it was weird. The ones that did know I was a girl, but I played the season on the boys team as a pitcher and loved it. It really wasn't a problem for me until puberty because when everyone's, mm -hmm. you know, we get all of our Hormones are making us all weird and crazy as teenagers and the social dynamics start to change, right? Because your, your sexuality is waking up and suddenly the relationships between guys and girls are different. So guys are looking at girls as I'm either attracted to you or I'm not attracted to you. And the girls are doing, doing likewise with the boys. And I was awakening to the fact that I was having crushes on girls. I just didn't know how, how do I fit then? Like, because the, all the guys that I was in like a playing guitar with some of the guys in junior high and now suddenly they're trying to flirt with me and that felt weird it's like <laughs> dude like ace farley does not flirt with gene simmons like this is so <laughs> it, it, it was just weird and and so i kind of lost all those guy friends because that dynamic started to feel weird and and i didn't have a lot of female friends so things got really hard for me at that point and that's when it really started to impact my mental health because again this is a small farming community there was no gay or lesbian community to speak of. So I just felt like, well, then I don't fit anywhere. So that's when my mental health took a nosedive. And then as a uh, young adult, I moved to the city and became part of the lesbian community. And things started to get better at that point because I was A, exposed to a lot of diversity then. And 
meeting gay and lesbian people who, you know, like lesbians who were butch lesbians and, and seemed to experience something similar to what I was experiencing as cross-sex identification. And back then, I mean, this was the early 90s, so I still had never heard of gender identity disorder or a trans person ever, and I had never met anyone that had, had got the sex change, to use the old language. Mm. And Will and Grace put it put them in a few episodes, I think, trans people, but I think that was as far as I knew about them as well. <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't really watching a lot of TV even back then, so, I mean, I went to college and was hanging out within the community and mostly the women's community. And so I was just starting to make sense of things as, well, there are, are these butch lesbians who seem to describe having similar sort of cross-sex identification that I had. And so I was making sense of it. Okay, well, this is just something that some gay and lesbian people experience. And that was starting to feel okay for me. Experiencing homophobia was still awkward. And, and as well, awkward to just downright painful and frightening at times. Mm. I was on a march, a gay and lesbian march in Winnipeg many years ago, back before there were pride parades. It was just a march of, you know, homemade placards and a hundred people marching down the street saying, you know, something needs to be done about homophobia. And we had skinheads in their black van circling around us and Christians, you know, lining the, the on the sides of the streets with their placards saying, you know, God doesn't yeah, we can guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can guess what they were saying. And so those were frightening times to be a gay and mm. lesbian person. And then I moved to a different city to study art. And that's when I first in university, my friends and I took a class on queer theory as an elective at a neighboring university. And some of those theories appealed to me because they started to sound like the gender dysphoria that I was experiencing. And that's when I first heard the word transgender was coming out of queer theory and people like Judith Butler were describing female masculinities in queer right. theory. And so I was really excited about some of those theories initially, but I started to notice that it made my gender dysphoria a lot worse. I was kind mm. of becoming lost in those theories. And it's important to remember that Judith Butler, I mean, she's a lesbian. She's never come out as trans. I think when she was talking about female masculinity, she was talking about something else. Like she wasn't talking about a, like a, a diagnostic category of gender dysphoria. She It wasn't a clinical explanation for why some of us experience those feelings. And it's, it's postmodern theory. It's, it's deconstructive theory. So what queer theory was meant to do as a, as a political strategy, if you read like I was reading things like Foucault and Judith Butler and Judith Halberstam. And Foucault talked about the invention of homosexuality, the invention of the word like gay, that prior to us calling it there, those are gay people. It was happy. That was the gay it, term. Yeah. yeah or happy. homosexual. Used happy. Yeah, it used yeah. to just be a behavior. Like some people had same homosexual sex with other people, but it wasn't like a, a social category of personhood until we decided to make it a social category of personhood. And so Foucault was arguing that I know this is a tangent, but it's kind of important to how this all developed for me. So he was saying that the oppressor, so straight people needed to create a social category of there is an identifiable homosexual person in order to oppress them. And so the whole idea, does that make sense? That yeah, we have I to be able so. We have to so. be able to identify a target in order to oppress them. Okay. So the whole idea of queer theory was, well, we don't want to be a target for homophobia. So we need to blur the boundaries of these social categories of personhood. If you think of almost like a metaphor of a hunter targeting in on its on its prey, we need to create a kind of smoke and mirrors show here to make it harder for them to target us. So we need to blur these distinctions. We need to do the opposite of identifying clearly defined categories. We need to blur the boundaries of those categories to make it harder to target and oppress us. 
So we need to blur the boundaries between male and female or gay mm. and straight. So that's the whole to, queering of yeah. culture, right? Is to is, kind of shoot a moving target, basically yes, something like that. Yes, yeah. let's create this smoke and mirror show to make it harder to target us. But that smoke and mirror show is very destabilizing. It's meant to be socially destabilizing. And so for a person who is experiencing gender dysphoria, who is already struggling to kind of figure out this categorization of ourself as male or female, because we have a condition that is making that hard to do that, to engage in this queer theory, it's kind of like a match on gasoline. It was making my gender dysphoria so much worse by immersing myself in these queer theories, which are meant to politically destabilize our understandings of male and female and gay and straight. It was really confusing my gender dysphoria. Yeah, And I picked up on that after a year or two of engaging in those theories, because I was in art school as my friends were. So we were using these theories to make art and exploring our identities through our art, making use of these theories. But I was just finding my mental health was deteriorating by using queer theory as something to build my identity on, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I left those theories behind and went back to kind of the lesbian identity that I had. And, and this is just lesbian masculinity because some lesbians are more masculine. And that was starting to feel okay to me. And then I moved to Vancouver, which is where I first met a transgender person. And Vancouver is, I think throughout the world, there's sort of these hot spots for queer theory and gender theory. And, and so we tend to see more transgender people in these hot spots. But I was still living my life as a lesbian up until that point and was becoming a part of the butch femme scene within the lesbian community, which was a satisfying outlet for my masculinity to be recognized. Back then, we still, we kind of use words like boy or, you know, masculine pronouns and names within the butch femme scene. And we weren't deluded that we were actually men. It was just a way of acknowledging our masculinity and setting up a kind of social structure in which we got to express our masculinity in these dynamics. And that was satisfying for me, but it was also, sometimes that scene can be quite limited and, and rigid too because it, it models itself after um, kind of 1950s dating rituals and <laughs> if you read like a 1950s dating book that men are supposed to walk on this side of the sidewalk not this side of the sidewalk and courtship rituals and stuff and, and that's what it's it's based on and that aspect of it didn't appeal to me so much and a lot of crossover with the kink or leather community as well which I wasn't really interested in and went through a rather challenging time in my life my life due to various circumstances, went through a lot of upheaval. So my daughter was born and that was just a huge life change for me. I went through a major career change, which is major upheaval. And a gay man in, in Vancouver was also violently murdered. He lived two blocks away from me. His name is, was Aaron Webster. He lived two blocks away from me. Some guys from a local suburb went into Vancouver with the intention of hunting down a, a gay man. And they went to Stanley Park, which was a known cruising area for gay men at, at night. And they went to, to Stanley Park, found Aaron Webster, chased him down through the park and caught him and beat him to death. And so that was on my mind. That was a huge wound in the gay and lesbian community at that time. So all of these things were going on for me at the same time and was having an impact on my mental health. And at that time, watched a documentary on TV about trans kids. And they were saying, well, if you have these feelings of cross-sex identification, it meant you are a trans person as a separate category of personhood. And that, I think, in my vulnerability at that time, that completely flipped my identity instantly, where I started to think, oh, I guess I'm not 
a butch lesbian after all. I guess I'm actually one of these trans people because that's what they're saying is that when you feel this cross-sex identification and, and you're like this really masculine girl that you're a trans kid, I thought, well, I, I guess I'm trans after all. It was like this realization, right? That I guess that's what I am. And even though I had been living successfully as a lesbian and was content to do that up until that point. So for me, it was like, it was ideological capture, right? And, and so I really invested in that. That's who I am. I'm going to do this. And and it was like three months later, I was on testosterone and, and on this journey. And that really almost became an addiction for me that you watch these physical changes happening. And I felt like, well, that just can't happen soon enough, right? And then you start to feel, you just start to appear more masculine, but I still wasn't really feeling like I had arrived at this mysterious destination I was after. And that sort of propelled me forward. Well, then I guess I need, I guess I, I'm not feeling better because I haven't completed my transition. So then I needed, felt like I needed, well, now I need the mastectomy and then now I'm still not feeling complete. And now so much of my body's looking masculine that other parts of my body are really upsetting me because now there's this mismatch of body parts. And it really propelled me forward to the next intervention and the next intervention. And I was on the wait list for the bottom surgery for, for about 10 years and then finally got that done. And so now I've reached the end of everything that medicine can do for me at that point, but still didn't feel like, okay, at what point do I really believe that I'm just a guy now, you know, just like mm -hmm. any other guy. And that's what I'm being told that I'm supposed to feel. You didn't and get that closure. To yeah. get that closure. And it's like, well, I'm still not really feeling that. I still feel like, well, I was born female. And what do you do with all your memories? Like when you want to just present to the world, well, I'm just a guy like any other guy and I want to be accepted like any other guy. What do you do with all your memories? So that 30 some years of, you know, having lived in the lesbian community, have been raised a girl. What do I do with those memories? So it's mm. such, such a psychological kind of confusing experience. And when I actually started testosterone and i haven't told many people this but when i um first started testosterone i had a very bizarre psychological experience where i felt because i was getting a lot of rejection from the lesbian community because they felt abandoned and betrayed by me that i'd made this choice so i felt like my whole life was falling apart at that point you know my my re long-term relationship broke down i had this new you know one-year-old baby and it was a very stressful time and then i didn't feel like i had my support network around me anymore because lesbians had their own feelings about what i was doing so i really crashed and i had this psychological experience of like a sensation it wasn't it wasn't a vision, but it was like this sensation of standing over a pool of water, watching the female version of me drown. And that person was kind of thrashing around saying, like, help me. Why aren't you doing anything for me to protect me? And the other part of me that was making this choice to transition, standing over that, just like watching that happen and, and not saving this drowning person. And it was such a disturbing experience. And I... I was in bed sobbing for days while I was going through that experience. And then I eventually kind of worked that out and, and got back on my feet. And that was really the only time in my life that I was suicidal just because that experience was so disturbing. But that was mm -hmm. after I transitioned, not leading up to my transition. And so now, you know, I'm almost 50 years old and I'm in a stable place at this point. I think my health, mental health is pretty good and I'm functioning well. And, and now I'm in a place where I can kind of look back at all of that and unpack it all and realizing like, I was doing okay as, as a very highly masculine woman, though I was experiencing transphobia. 
there were times where I'd be walking down the street and some guy would roll down his window as he was driving by and scream a homophobic slur at me or something, or, or I'd be in a store just shopping and someone, some guy would make a, a rude comment about having, you know, a short hair and stuff and, and just looking as a very masculine woman. And that was hard. So looking back, I think I was ideologically captured by this idea that I am a trans person because I had cross-sex identification and I was masculinized. I was at age 19 diagnosed as having an ovotesticular DSD. So what that means is rather by accident, because I was having a lot of problems with my internal sex organs, and I developed a very large cyst, about a grapefruit-sized cyst on one of my ovaries that was causing a lot of pain. And so I had surgery for that, and the surgeon had said that the ovary was so unrecognizable as an organ that they sent it for biopsy just to make sure I, there wasn't any cancer or anything. And that's when they discovered that it had testicular tissue. So I had at least one organ that was functioning as, as a testicle. I don't know about the other one that, that wasn't investigated, but the surgeon seemed really embarrassed for me and didn't know that I had cross-sex identification. So the only thing that, that the surgeon really said was, well, it's gone now. I mean, we removed it, so it's not going to be a problem for you and just forget about it. But for me experiencing, you know, feeling like a and appearing a very masculine female and had this cross-sex identification, it was very confusing because on one hand it validated, well, I guess that's why I'm feeling this way, that that I had a testicle. But it also really confused me. It's like, well, then what sex am I? Like, if we define sex by gametes, well, I had both. So what, like, what sex am I? So it was a very confusing <laughs> thing to experience. But the surgeon had just said, well, just forget about it. And it was only within this past year that my mom actually told me that intersex conditions run in her side of the family. So there was just so much information that I <sighs> didn't know. Like, I didn't, I didn't understand what intersex meant. The surgeon hadn't really explained it to me. The surgeon seemed kind of embarrassed. And so I was embarrassed about it. I didn't talk to anybody about it. There was just so much that A, I didn't know. I didn't know how to make sense of it. So when this idea came out that I just am a trans person, that's what I grabbed a hold of and believed because doctors and teachers and these people with authority were saying that that's what my feelings meant, right? And and I didn't even tell my doctor when I did my hormone readiness assessment, I didn't even tell her that I was intersex because I was confused. I didn't know it was relevant and I felt ashamed of it. So in hindsight, I think it's more fair to say that I probably have female chromosomes. In terms of gametes, I had both because I had a very rare intersex condition. I think that better explains my experience that I'm a highly masculinized female because my testosterone levels were high and I'm same-sex attracted. I think I'm just a highly masculinized female who was ideologically captured by this idea of being a trans person and made decisions to transition accordingly. I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm at peace with my decision, but it's so much more complicated than I was just born trans. There's a whole lot to unpack there, Aaron. And what I want to briefly go back to is, first of all, the idea of queer theory, because a lot of listeners may view the word queer as a slur. And I think it was for a, a very long period of time. And I guess what I hear a lot in the LGBT community is that like black people have taken ownership of the N-word in some circles, or there's debate about whether it's okay to use the N-word for, even for black people. Yeah, There is an ownership of the word queer, but there's a lot of conflict between gay people or LGBT people because they see it as a slur. Now, what that has led to and what you've kind of talked about is ideas like genderqueer. Now, I'm not really well versed in that because when I see the word genderqueer or hear the word genderqueer 
it relates to sometimes sexualities like demisexual, which mm-hmm. are, I think, from my understanding, sort of like hetero based. Like demisexual means you're only attracted to a certain. I think it's something along the lines of you're only attracted to someone if you have a really strong emotional connection to them. Now, that's not necessarily gay, is it? No, I mean, lots of heterosexual women only sleep with people once they have a, an emotional connection, like take yeah. me out for dinner first and get to know me before I have sex <laughs> with you. That never used to be a, a separate sexuality. That's just, especially for women, a pretty, pretty common. <laughs> 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 yeah, so there is this growing movement of gay and lesbian people and trans people like myself that want to remove the cue from LGBT because, I mean, some people think of the word queer as just being kind of a friendly umbrella term that queer is just, you know, that whole rainbow of different expressions and sexualities, and it's just a shorthand. But queer politics has a lot to do with queer theory and that political goal of intentionally disrupting and destabilizing and blurring boundaries as a very intentional political strategy. But that's caused a lot of problems for gay and lesbian people and T people, because when we blur all the boundaries and say, well, there's these blurred boundaries between what it means to be gay and straight, or these blurred boundaries between what it means to be male or female. Now lesbians don't even have lesbian-only spaces anymore, or, you know, like heterose- people who are exclusively heterosexual can call themselves queer and now be in these spaces. So it hasn't really served the aim of protections as I think it was intended, to protect us from discrimination. It's actually now impeding on our rights as same-sex attracted people or like how many lesbian-only bars are there anymore? How many? There's not a lot. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I used to be a member of a club called Ms. Purdy's Women's Club in, in Winnipeg. It was an exclusive lesbian-only club. It was a bar, but you had to have a membership for safety reasons in order to gain access. Or if you were a guest, you had to be signed in by a member. That was the longest running lesbian bar in North America, to my knowledge. Very beloved club that is shut down as a lot of lesbian-only spaces have been. And that, I think, is a direct result of queer theory, because when you blur the boundaries between gay and straight and male and female, well, and now we've taken that idea and made it into law, now you no longer have the legal right to same-sex spaces or same-sex attraction, because you've, mm. you've now made it law to blur the boundaries between those things. So now the gay and lesbian community is like saying, okay, we're dropping the queue then, because we actually value same-sex spaces or lesbian-only spaces or gay-only spaces. And, and this is now breaking down our rights, not protecting our rights. Yeah. And I guess it's probably creating a lot of conflict as well from people who aren't in the community who kind of see this as some sort of like wokeism or, or, or people who were prone to be discriminatory can have a weapon to fuel their hatred. I want to just quickly talk about your dead name if we can i don't really like to use sometimes the phrase dead name because i think it's it's a phrase that's up to a debate actually in the conversation but your previous name i should say yeah because i'm not you're able to you're (laughs) able to (laughs) you're you're able to pass pretty exceptionally as male on appearance aaron how important is that to you and other trans people when it comes to assimilation and how have you dealt with moving on from your previous name and have your family been able to accept that really well as, as well? My family was very on board with my transition. I think for them, it made just as much sense to them as it did to me at the time. I mean, they remember me as a very, very masculine girl who had fights with them all the time about what I got to wear and, and what hairstyle I had. And so for them, it made sense to them. I mean, it, these parents that said, well, there were no signs 
of gender nonconformity growing up. There were very clear signs. Uh, it was many battles because of that. So they were on board with that. But, you know, one of the first things that my dad said when I told him I wanted to transition and I was in my early 30s at the time, the first thing he said to me, and I have a great relationship with them now. So I say this only as explanation, not to guilt trip my dad about it. But he <laughs> said, well, that's so much better than the gay thing. And he said, I don't know why you don't all do that. So, I mean, that was a very clear indication to me that part of why he was behind my transition is because that was so much more comfortable for him than having a, a gay kid. So on one hand, I really appreciate the support from them because it would have been so much harder if they weren't behind me and supportive. But at the same time, it hurts to think that their support is motivated by homophobia. Yeah. And there's definitely a, a question there because I think I remember an article from the BBC uh, for quite a few years ago now of a Middle Eastern country. I think it was either Iran or maybe Saudi Arabia who were paying for or maybe even forcing gender transitions or, or people to trans when they found out they were gay because they were like, well, we don't want this gay person, so let's just transition them because then there'll mm -hmm. be a on appearance, heterosexual, but trans, male or female. Yeah. Very confusing and horrible. Yeah. And all of this has evolved for me because when I was at the beginning of my transition and had so much invested on this, you know, believing that I am a trans person and this is what I need to do to be happy, there's such tunnel vision alongside that. I did experience it as a very kind of addiction-like behavior of, of this compulsion, right, that drives me forward to doing this. And had anyone challenged me at that time, I think I probably would have experienced that as very hurtful. And so people refusing to use my chosen name and things probably would have been very hurtful at that time. But, you know, I'm just in a very different place with it at this point in my life and unpacking it. And I think one of the things that I realized that at a certain point was, you know, trying to convince myself that I'm just a dude like any other dude trying to figure out what do I do about all my memories and when I talk to people and people are talking about what they were like as a kid, like having to always edit those stories to live, you know, to live stealth and edit those stories. Like it's exhausting, mm. right? To have to rewrite all those stories and try to twist them in a way that I'm talking about myself as a little boy, not a little girl. You know, I played on a ringette team, not a hockey team. And so I would tell people I played hockey or whatever. Like it's so exhausting. And that the does have, endless, isn't it? It, yeah. it absolutely never goes away or dealing with my own biology and having to tell physicians like, cause it matters to my health that I am biologically female or biologically intersex or, or whatever. But so that never goes away and it's exhausting. And I think that's why, you know, trans people today are rewriting language to say, well, I'm a trans woman with a penis and, and because I'm a trans woman, the penis is female. I mean, I, I think that's because we have to do this mental gymnastics in order for this to make sense to us internally. But I really prioritize my mental health. And I, I got to a point, it's like, you know what? My mental health matters more to me than anything else. And how do I do this in a way where I, that just constant struggle stops? And I came to a place of realizing I need to embrace my entire journey in order for that to stop. I need to embrace the fact that this trans experience means that I was female. If that wasn't the case, then why, what did I transition from then? Like I was female and I had gender dysphoria. I was a girl, I was a lesbian, I was a daughter, I was a sister with gender dysphoria. That's precisely why I felt distressed and uncomfortable. So the whole trans experience, that's part of the reality of the trans experience is that struggle and that motivation to 
have transitioned in the first place. And now I live my life as male, but I don't understand how that's homophobic to say that. And, and it's done so much good for my mental health to say, I need, yes, this is awkward. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. I feel like an idiot sometimes that I made this choice and made kind of mistakes in my conceptualization of this and made that mistake of thinking that I was trans, not a masculine woman or, or intersex. And all of this is humiliating and embarrassing, but I need to embrace all of that about myself in order to reclaim my own mental health. And I think some people are probably still stuck in where I, where I was at. I don't mean disrespect for them because I remember how awful that feels and how exhausting that is to try to write a narrative for ourselves where we can present to the world and rationalize this for ourselves and feel okay. And I encourage people to embrace all of you, you know, embrace your whole journey, including the fact that you were born one biological sex and that that was really hard for you for some reason. And all of that is part of our journey and part of our story. And we need to embrace all of that. So I get accused of transphobia for saying it in reality-based terms. And I say, isn't it transphobic to feel like we have to hide all of that? Like to just say, I'm just a dude and I'm just going to live my life and, and have everyone believe I'm just a dude now. That's transphobic to feel like I need to hide that 35 years of my life living as female and, and lesbian it's weird, you know, it's a weird story and it's a weird experience, but that is the reality of being trans. And I don't see how it's transphobic to come out about that whole reality. Before we reflect and finish up on this topic, Aaron, I just want to quickly talk about assimilation and go back to that if we can, because boy conversations are very different to girl conversations <laughs> as we discussed off air yeah. when it comes to sort of like hazing or for what that, you know, the listeners might not know what that word means, but it means just, you know, taking the piss out of each other as a way of building trust among friends, you know, saying very un-PC things, but obviously you wouldn't say those things outside of that conversation, that private sanctum. You told me a story about a WhatsApp group chat you were involved in, which leads on from this idea of passing and socializing into male groups, Aaron. Can you tell me if you can about that and the person who was experiencing these difficulties? Because it's part of the male experience people don't always get, do they? Yeah. Sorry, I'm just trying to remember that conversation. If we can just sort of jog my memory about... Uh... Uh, it was the one where I think it was a female to male teenager or maybe sort of young adult was in the conversation and they had a shall we say on PC comment from a doctor about their weight right yes yes so that was a uh, it was a listserv so that's going back quite a few years now when we still had list email listservs and it was a long time listserv for trans men in the area and there was a young person on there that was recalling a story about yeah some physician I think had like patted him on the back and said lay off the burgers so this individual and other people in the group were really appalled that the doctor had done that and, and saying, well, that's, you know, fat phobic and that's, you know, so we need to start like writing letters and push back and really call that physician out for being such a bigot. And I just saw that very differently. I, I said, well, that's kind of a normal interaction between two males. I mean, I, I don't think that male physician would have patted a female patient on the back and said, <laughs> hey girl, like lay off the burgers. Like, cause she, would have, his life. <laughs> she totally would have ripped a strip off of him, but that's a pretty normal kind of male to male interaction. And I said, had it occurred to you that maybe 
your physician was was trying to validate your gender and your trans identity and was trying to respect your male identity by just treating you like a dude. And and that hadn't occurred to this young person. And so people on the listserv were really angry that I made that comment and saying, well, there's no place for that in this dialogue. This is just cisnormative, you know, BS that, that you're spouting here. And But that, that young person said, well, actually, I'm finding this conversation really helpful because... For anyone that's trying to transition and live their life as the other sex, they're trying to, to relearn those social cues and they're, they're trying to re-socialize and just do the transition successfully and, and, and blend into the world as the opposite sex. He was finding that conversation really helpful to, to like, oh my God, you're right. Like this doctor was just treating me like a dude and I wasn't picking up on that because I haven't done that psychological social work. But I was told that that conversation wasn't allowed on the listserv. And so the, the moderator shut it down completely. And it, it's such an injustice and a disservice to young people who want to transition. And not that they're necessarily trying to like deceive anybody or trick anybody or, you know, but that used to be part of a, of a transsexual experience is, is we want to just, we're not trying to hurt anybody or intentionally deceive them. This isn't a sexual fetish for those of us with like classic gender dysphoria. We're just trying to get on with our lives and not ruffle anyone's feathers and not upset anybody that used to be talked about in the community as this is a part of our transition but if we're not allowed to coach each other and support each other and talk about you misinterpreted a social cue there and then how are we supposed to learn and do that work to blend to, in yeah. to blend in and socially yeah. transition right but the problem is that some trans people they're not trying to do that work and blend in and socially transition because they're doing it this more from the queer theory way of doing this, that we are intent, we are trying to disrupt these social institutions. We are trying to disrupt what people see as male and female. Does and, that in, not engender more fear because it's fear of the outsider or fear of someone in that space saying the wrong thing? So if you're trying to go into a male space, but you're not trying to blend in, yeah. people might go, well, I don't know what you're trying to do here. I'm a bit scared of talking to you because I'm going to say the wrong thing. So therefore then you don't make as many friends and you don't, you know, it's just, a, it's, surely that's a vicious cycle, isn't it? It is. But, and there are also these two very competing agendas within the trans community. Like those of us that are just kind of that classic transsexual experience of, we just want to make this transition. And, and we don't necessarily believe that we truly are changing sex and we truly are the opposite sex. But as a treatment for our dysphoria, we just feel so much more comfortable and can feel like we can just be ourselves by making this social and, and physical transition. And we want support to do that successfully. We want support to help us re-socialize, help us figure this out. That's one agenda. And there's this competing agenda of we're not trying to figure this out. Like we want to disrupt things. We want people to lose their sense of certainty about what is male and what is female and what is gay and what is straight. So those are two very different competing agendas and I feel that those who are trying to disrupt and break down these boundaries are interfering with my ability to learn these skills to do this well and, and just get on with my life and have a job and raise my kids and be a good spouse. So these two competing agendas are kind of at war with one another within the trans community. And I think, you know, anyone outside of the community seeing how this, because I think those debates probably exist outside of the trans community either. And, and people are probably scratching their heads, wondering why things are getting so weird and so heated and, and why trans people are trying to cancel other trans people <laughs> is because of those competing agendas. As a final question, Aaron, A, given all you've been through, what has this journey taught you about yourself? And B, 
obviously you now live a happy and hopefully successful life with a partner and and four wonderful children. If you could go back and speak to that, you know, six-year-old Kimberly, maybe the 15-year-old Kimberly who was struggling with her sexuality and fitting in, maybe the 20-something Kimberly who was about to medically transition or or maybe even the 45 or 48-year-old Aaron speaking to me now, what would you say to them knowing what you do now? Yeah, and, and and I can only speak to my own experience because I think we all transition for different reasons and develop dysphoria for different reasons. But I think what I needed was healthy gay and lesbian role models as a child because growing up in a tiny little farming community, there was a lack of that. There was a lack of diversity. There was a lack of seeing that there are different kinds of boys and different kinds of girls. And I needed for that to be okay. I needed it for it to be okay for me to be a very masculine girl and that was just innate to me that wasn't a performance of masculinity that was just innate to me and i needed for that to be okay without the constant message that there was something wrong with me that there was something i should be doing differently you know whether very subtle cues of you know well would you wear a dress today or you know so sometimes that was very subtle and sometimes that was very aggressive so i needed healthy role models to model that for me and and to figure out where i fit in the world and and to help me develop a healthy identity around that it would have been helpful to know that I had an intersex condition at an earlier age and to have that understanding what that was and unpacking that without feeling shamed about it. I mean, I think it did me some harm that, that the doctor seemed kind of embarrassed about it and wasn't really interested in having a, a larger you know, a, a conversation to help me understand that. I needed to understand that there are different kinds of dysphoria and that it develops for different reasons, you know, because there is a one subtype when you look at the psychological literature about this, there is a subtype of gender dysphoria that exists for people with intersex conditions. That's now in the newest version of the DSM talking about gender dysphoria, that an intersex subtype of gender dysphoria exists. And they say that that has a slightly different developmental pathway than other types of dysphoria. And there's also a a homosexual subtype of gender dysphoria that has a different developmental pathway for it. And I didn't know any of that. So I didn't know that many gay and lesbian people have a homosexual subtype of gender dysphoria as children. And that those are the ones that tend to desist as they get older, as they develop their sexuality and, and a gay and lesbian identity. It would have been helpful to know all of that, right? To say, well, Okay, so you're having this experience, but here's what we know about that experience. We know that it may be the result of your intersex condition. Here's what we know about and here are your options. Or it could be that this is a result of your homosexuality and that that's a different type of gender dysphoria and that the vast majority of people with homosexual gender dysphoria integrate that into a gay and lesbian identity. So it's not about shaming me, right? It's not about saying this is bad and something we need to get rid of. But can that be integrated into your lesbian identity? So if we don't have that information, how are we supposed to problem solve? So I'm not trying to take away people's agency. I want to give people more agency by understanding there are different types of dysphoria, different developmental pathways, and different types of psychotherapy might be helpful for some of those and not others. Because the WPATH Standards of Care does say that psychotherapy in many cases does help people integrate it. So it's not about changing it is about integrating it and make, making sense of it within a, an identity that isn't necessarily about being trans and having to transition. People can still choose to do that. Fine, I'm not trying to take that away from people. But it would have been helpful to have all that information before I made my decision to medically transition because I think I would have chosen differently. 
we have come to our final topic of conversation, Aaron, on the podcast. And it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So first off, how is your mental health at the moment? I think it's pretty good. I'm at a pretty good place in my life at this point, dealing with some stress right now, just because I am becoming more public, speaking about these things in a very highly politicized environment. I hope we can bring the conversation back to a middle ground at some point. And so we can just have conversations like this that are common rational, but speaking out does bring some backlash. So that is, that is stressful for sure. I mean, nobody wants, you know, hateful messages being sent to them. So it's stressful, but I'm, trying to make use of my best tools to manage that stress so that it doesn't have an impact on my mental health. This has been a wild journey over the Mm. last 48 years of of my life. You know, as a mental health clinician, I've learned a lot of tools for navigating mental health and I've applied those to my life. So I try to, at times of stress, because my dysphoria gets worse at times of stress, that's something I've noticed, a pattern over my life that at times when my life feels a little bit less stable because of life happens, right? Things go sideways sometimes in life. So it's really important for me to manage my stress in ways because that does end up affecting my gender dysphoria. I start to focus more on parts of my body and stuff when I get more dysphoric. Even now, even though I've transitioned, that still happens. So because I know that, I have more awareness now at this point in my life. So I use things like mindfulness tools. I dig into my social supports. I shut off social media because most of the nastiness is in social media, right? I mean, it's amazing how much of that just magically disappears when I turn my phone off and I just spend time with my family and my kids and mow my lawn and, and do my gardening and just live my life. I'm able to manage my mental health pretty well. What age do you think you were when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind so this could be gender dysphoria but it could just be your general mental health as well well I think I was slowly doing that work I mean it was eye-opening to me to become trained as a mental health clinician because when you learn those tools and you learn about different diagnostic categories you learn how to recognize things so I was recognizing things in my in myself and then learning tools to to deal with that and manage it so that I think was probably the start of it and just being really determined to value my mental health whether I chose to transition or not, my mental health matters. And I just decided, especially when the birth of my daughter, you know, I'm not just responsible for my own life. I'm also responsible for looking after her and modeling healthy things for her. So seeing myself through her eyes made a big difference to really say, well, I want to be the healthiest person I can be for her. But then also when I reached the end of everything that my medical transition can do and then seeing, well, that didn't resolve everything. So now I've got to dig in and and address some of that emotional work. Like, Why was it so uncomfortable for me to be a girl or a woman or a lesbian? Because now, you know, when you remove that kind of mask of the trans identity, that's what's left, right? Anytime you have sort of a crutch, whether it's a, um, a substance that you're using or whatever that crutch is to manage your feelings and something that's hard to face when we remove that thing. So I was so focused on my medical transition, you know, the carrot in front of me of this is what I need to feel better. And now I reached the end of all of that. What's left is those unresolved internal struggles. And so that's the point in which I dug into anything that was, that was left to work on and, and resolve. When it comes to the first conversation you had, with someone about your mental health do you remember it and if so can you just tell me about it who was it with what impact did it have and did you feel like a part of you had changed or 
you had entered a new chapter in your life or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it seem like something fairly insignificant and nice and normalized? You know, I've had positive and negative experiences with counselors <laughs> over the years. And I think how I would define a positive versus negative experience is the attitude that the clinician had. That as long as I felt it was very therapeutic to feel like I could put anything about myself on the table and I was going to be faced with respect and compassion so that I can let someone into that experience and work through it. And so I have encountered some really fantastic counselors over the years who I just felt had, you know, a positive regard for me and my well-being, no matter what I was struggling with at the time, which develops really good relationship with people because shame is the worst thing for our mental health. Mm. No matter what we're struggling with, we need to find somebody who's willing to not shame us for it. I would say any negative experiences I've had with counselors in the past is because they weren't able to project that unconditional regard for something that I was experiencing. So one example is when I was really struggling as a new parent, because I wasn't the birth parent, I was struggling with the fact that I wasn't, I didn't have that same depth of immediate bond with my daughter as her birth mom did. And I didn't understand that that was actually pretty normal. I think a lot of fathers, for example, they see that there's this really intense bond between the, the baby and the mother initially, and fathers kind of feel on the outside of that and sometimes freak out. And I've talked to dads about this since then, <laughs> that dads sometimes freak out like, oh my God, like, is there something wrong with me? Am I ever going to bond with my kid? But that's actually very normal. But I didn't know that that was normal, but I felt like the counselor had expressed a certain amount of almost like a like a disgust that I was struggling as a new parent. And that really wasn't helpful for me, right? Because I, I wanted to be a good parent and I was already feeling kind of freaked out that I was struggling because I, I didn't have a lot of experience as a parent. I didn't have as much experience with babies. And, and so I was stressed and struggling. So to, so to feel like I was being judged by the clinician in some way wasn't helpful. But the vast majority of my experiences with counselors have been positive. You've talked about your triggers and you talked about your tools and methods already, Aaron. So I want to ask you one final question here, and it's a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, whether they be trans, gay, lesbian, straight, men or women, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? The biggest difference for me is connecting with healthy community. You know, the trans community and LGB community has become so politicized, which makes it really hard to just be ourselves and be open about our, our experiences. Because as soon as we say something that contradicts someone else's politics, it explodes so quickly. And so that for the long time was my community. But as soon as I open my mouth, someone's going to be angry and hostile. And that has such an impact on a person's mental health. Healthy community, which I did later find, is community in which we feel safe to be ourselves and to open up about our experiences without fear that someone's going to attack us. I mean, disagreement is inevitable, but I think in healthy community, we're able to disagree and work through problems in a loving and respectful way. And I've experienced that, that now as an adult, that I have community in my life where I feel like I'm, I have emotionally healthy and safe adults in my life and we're able to have respectful, sometimes challenging conversations and disagreements, but respectful and safe. I think so many people don't have that. They either have unhealthy community or no community. And I think the biggest impact on a person's mental health is finding 
safe community and learning how to be a safe person in safe community. Aaron Kimberly, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Wow. Well, I think we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. And boy, my head hurts a little bit from how much we explored there with Aaron. And I hope that you've taken so much from this, listeners. The conversation when it comes to the trans debate is certainly not monolithic and there are a whole host and range of different perspectives when it comes to it. I hope that it's this has provided a unstigmatized conversation and a healthy one as well. I want to say a massive thanks to Aaron for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Aaron on social media if you want to find out more about the work he is doing. As always, I'll sign us off by saying if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Give us a share with your family, your friends or your work colleagues. Tell everyone you know the good news and good work we're doing here at Vents. If you want to help us further, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing at Vents and want to support us even further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash VentsHelpUK or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. Thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. <laughs>